Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm Jordan Valerie, Editor-in-Chief of Millennial Politics, and today I'm joined by Gina Ortiz-Jones, a former Air Force Intelligence Officer and current Democratic candidate challenging Will Hurd in Texas's 23rd Congressional District. Glad to have you on today. Thank you, Jordan. I very much look forward to the conversation. Yeah, me too. So could you start by telling us about your background and why you wanted to run? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. I am a proud first generation American. My mother came to this country almost 40 years ago to the day. And so, you know, I've always been cognizant of the fact that many of the opportunities I have are just because I was born in this country. It wasn't always easy though. I mean, I know like many of the folks that have to need reduced lunch at a certain point, or you need subsidized housing, all of those were critical investments for me growing up. And it was that ROTC scholarship that I earned that allowed me to get an education and go on to serve my country. So I've been you know, very fortunate to have been invested in by my community and my country. Professionally, uh, as I mentioned, I served as an intelligence officer in the Air Force. I deployed to Iraq. I served under Don't Ask, Don't and once I separated from the Air Force, I actually came back to San Antonio when my mom, my mom became ill, and I wanted to just be, you know, be closer with her during that time. During then, though, I advised on operations all over Latin America. I would then go on to join the Defense Intelligence Agency as part of that initial team supporting operations in Africa as part of U.S. Africa Command. The last part of my career, I worked on economic and national security issues, first as the Senior Advisor for Trade Enforcement, detailed from the intelligence community to the Office of the U.S. Trade Rep, and then I formally joined them as a Director for Investment, where I worked on something called the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., which reviews foreign transactions to ensure that there's no national security implications as a result of that, right? So if a foreign company wanted to buy, for example, the, the current U.S. company in charge of IT for the Pentagon, that's clearly something we'd want to make sure was was on the up and up. So, you know, I've been very fortunate, but, you know, my experiences both personally and professionally have just shaped my understanding of national security in a very different way, certainly based on the investments that I had growing up. But, you know, having served in countries where women and minorities are targeted, I've served in countries where governments hollowed out the middle class, and I've served in countries where government is not at all concerned with conflict of interest. And and so as I watched this administration up close and personal for five and a half months while serving in the executive office of the president, I knew my time in public service uh, would have to take a, a, a different route because I knew how those policies would affect me, uh, frankly, as a woman, as a first generation American, as a veteran, as a member of the LGBT community. But I also, no kidding, you know, Jordan knew how those policies would affect the community that I grew up in, right? I grew up in a lower middle income community, a community of color. I went to the kind of high school where you start with 900 and only 500 graduate. You know, I know what it's like to grow up and your health insurance plan is I hope you don't get sick. So for so many reasons, personally and professionally, this administration runs contrary to, to my personal values and my understanding of national security. You know, and then I looked around and, and thought, what would my next step in public service be? And when I look at my background, my professional experiences, and again, my personal experience, I think it lends itself to the discussions, and the types of decisions that are being made in the House of Representatives. So that's why I'm running. So what was the process of deciding to run? When did you start considering considering it and what finally gave you the push? Yeah, frankly, the night of the election in 2016, I just knew it would be different. I didn't know exactly how my time in public service would be different, but I knew it would be different if the Trump administration carried out, you know, many of the things that they said over the campaign. So I think it was, you know, watching this, there wasn't, frankly, there wasn't just one event, but I think watching, again, the policies and frankly, the intent of the policies of this administration, as well as when you look at, frankly, the caliber of people that they brought in to execute these policies, that was just very concerning. So watching that, you know, time and time again, and how that would affect, again, communities of color, how that would affect our judicial system, how would that would affect them 
many of the issues uh, regarding national security that I worked on, it, it became too much for me. So I wouldn't say there was one singular event, but I think when I looked at the cumulative effect of what was happening, it became increasingly hard for me to, to stand on the, on the sidelines and not think about how I might be able to serve my community and my country in a different way. This is the time, you know, I frankly, I'm just done, like so many people, done assuming that, uh, that somebody is going to look out for my best interests and somebody is going to serve my community in the way that I know I can. Um, so that's why I've stepped up. I think really, for me, the worst thing I think could be, you know, not even five, 10 years from now, but really like five, 10 months from now to look back at where we are with this administration and say, you know, what could I have done? What could I have done in light of, one, my background, but in light of all the opportunities that I've been afforded, what could I have done to serve my community and my country in a different way? So was thinking about answering that question is why this, to me, is the, is the right next step in terms of public service. How has being an openly gay first-generation Filipino-American, particularly being deployed under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, affected sure. your perspective? Yeah. Sometimes I get asked, you know, well, how do you think about this as a veteran? Or how do you think about this as a member of the LGBT community? And, you know, exactly the way that you captured it, it is very hard for me to answer questions as just a woman, just a woman of color, or just a member of the LGBT community. And so I think, you know, when I am approaching, as I've always approached public service, it has been with all of those identities in mind. But frankly, also the identity of somebody for, for whom the system is always not set up. Right. And I think even more so under this administration, that is frankly taking steps to make it even more difficult for people that might not have every access to resource, but frankly has all the talent in the world and just needs a little bit of an investment by their community and their country to realize their full talent. I mean, I think my own story shows the importance of that. Right. I mean, I think the fact that at one point I needed reduced lunch, the fact that at one point I needed subsidized housing, but all of those then were critical for me going on to, to earn an ROTC scholarship and then serve my country. There's not a lot of people, and that's what's always stayed with me, is like, so there's not a lot of people that go from reduced lunch to executive office of the president. I know exactly you know, how fortunate I am. Now, certainly there was hard work on my part, but it wasn't all me, right? Again, there were investments by my community and my country that allowed for that to happen. Even though I served under Don't Ask Hell, I consider it, you know, a great honor to have worn my nation's cloth. And, and thankfully, you know, that policy is, is no longer in effect. But I think, you know, it's certainly being threatened when you look at this administration. So I think that's why, you know, all the more reason for folks like myself that know just how awful that policy is, certainly for unit cohesion, but also certainly for, you know, military readiness. I think, so, you know, that question really kind of highlights a key contrast in this race that is beyond myself and Will Hurd, but, but our two profiles represent really what's at stake in, in this race at, on one level, right? So you have somebody like Will Hurd who voted to deny current members of our military access to medical resources just because they're transgender, right? So that man, that woman on the front line, already in harm's way, you're making their service to this country more difficult putting their health at risk. And for me, that's a, that's a military readiness issue. Because if, as, as a veteran, as somebody, again, who served in Iraq under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, you know that if one member of the team is not 100%, that unit is not 100% and the mission is at risk. It really is that simple, right? So you have somebody like him who voted to deny you know, medical services for transgender military members versus somebody like myself who served under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. This race is bigger than he and myself. 
there's a real question that we're all being asked here. It goes back to our values and how we treat other folks. So just a few weeks ago in Virginia and across the country, we saw marginalized folks prove that we don't have to stay on the electoral margins with Danica Rome, for example, yeah, exactly. a progressive trans woman defeating yeah. a Republican incumbent who bragged about being, quote, chief homophobe. Yeah. But even though these victories have been really encouraging, we also saw a lot of really cynical conservative attacks yeah. on the identities of these candidates. And I think that's a very scary prospect for marginalized folks who want to run for office on the issues and inspire people like them to feel safe for running for office. Have you experienced this at all? You know, I'll be honest, I haven't experienced any negativity, you know, with regards to me being, you know, a woman of color or a member of the LGBT community. Do I expect that that'll continue to be the case? No. You know, I know how ugly this could get. But look, my community is worth fighting for. My, at least the lesson I learned in Virginia, which is we don't have to moderate ourselves. We can be bold. We can talk about the issues and be unapologetic about who we are and what we stand for and what we are capable of doing and what that service to our community, to our country could mean. And frankly, it's 2017. If you want to attack me for being LGBT, one, let's have that conversation. I think that frankly shows more of that person's character than it is reflective of who I am as a person. But I would argue so many folks are so much more worried about things that actually can be affected. Like who I love is not going to change regardless of the discussion that we have. But what, what folks can change is whether or not there's a, a wall right on our southern border. What folks can change is whether or not they have access to quality healthcare. What folks can change is whether you know Texas remains the place that has the highest maternal mortality rate in the developed world. If we want to have a, a, a conversation attacking my, you know, me being a member of the LGBT community, that's a conversation that if they want to have it, we'll have it. But I mean, let's also point to the things that if we had a real conversation about the issues, who is going to do the most in service to the, to the constituents? And I think that's going to be the Democratic Party. Especially when you look at, frankly, when you look at what this administration has offered, they've offered nothing in terms of healthcare. In fact, they want to rip it away. They've offered nothing in terms of protection for marginalized groups. They don't even want us to be counted in the next census. The clear contrast in what our two, at least parties offer in terms of a vision for the, for the district and for the state and frankly for the country could not be more different. So let's have that conversation. I, I am not going to shy away from that at all. Because, and you know why, Jordan, it actually goes back to the first question that you answered. And, you know, if someone were to, to, to criticize me for being a member of the LGBT community, well, look, I served in uniform, right? Do you want to attack that as well? You know, I served my country as a public servant, as a civil servant, working on national security in Africa, working on national security in the executive office of the president. Do you want to attack that as well? So let's have this conversation. I welcome it. Could you tell us a little bit more about the work you did in the executive office? Sure. In 2012, President Obama stood up the Interagency Trade Enforcement Center. And as part of that executive order, he said that there would be a senior rep from the intelligence community. That would be the senior rep to that to that center. That's the position I filled. There's only I was only the second person to do that. And then the second portfolio that I worked on at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative was called the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. And so this is the front line that we need to be thinking a lot about a lot more, you know, the intersection of our economic and our national security, right? I mean, especially as one, I mean, the U.S. has some of the most innovative companies in the world, right? So it's not surprising that as these other countries look at meeting the needs of their own rising middle class, that they look to, frankly, just buy our companies, right? It's a lot easier than them having to come up with these things organically. But we have to make sure 
that as a result of those purchases, that those don't you know, hurt our own national security interests. And this is as requiring a much more sophisticated conversation because you know, some of this technology could be used in a tank. It could also be used in a toothbrush. So we need to you know, understand how some of our actions might actually send the wrong signal to a country when we say, no, you can't have something that they understand as needing to satisfy the needs of their rising middle class. Thinking more holistically about our economic international security and the dependencies between those, I think that'll also help us drive you know, the type of educational opportunities that we provide for folks, the type of investments that we have, the type of public-private partnerships that we encourage, as well as, you know, the type of advanced training we, we provide to folks. I mean, many of these opportunities don't require a four-year degree, so we need to be thinking, you know, about what that means for the next generation of economic opportunities. You mentioned national security, and I think when people hear that term, a lot of times they're going to talk about terrorism. But as you said, it's much more complicated than that. And something recently that we've been hearing from some top Democrats is that climate change is the top national security right. threat to the United States. Yeah. Is this something you agree with? I agree that climate, man-made climate change is a national security issue. And I'm going to talk about it in two ways. One, yes, you do have, at one point in time, I think it was probably within the last 24 months, the senior most military official in charge of all military forces in the Pacific area, Pacific arena. So it's called U.S. Pacific Command. I mean, he articulated that, yes, man-made climate change is a threat to national security because when they're being asked to increasingly do missions for which they are not adequately resourced, for which they are not adequately trained, and these are all related to humanitarian assistance um, and disaster relief efforts, all of which are increasing due to man-made climate change. So the, the national security risk there is I'm asking you to do you to do mission A and you're resourced and you're trained to do mission A. However, what you're actually having to do on a day-to-day -day basis because of climate change is mission B. One, a mission in which you are not adequately resourced, in which you don't have um, the type of training that's needed. So that's always the risk. You're not able to do something when you don't have the resources nor training to do something that you're asked to do. When we look at the domestic effects of that, there's also a national security threat, frankly, when we don't have, when we have such a large percentage of our population that is growing up with medical ailments related to um, increased rates of air pollution, for example, right? So this is how I understand this story. A couple of months ago, you know, Will Hurd and Republicans voted to delay the implementation of smog reduction measures. Now in Texas, that matters because one in 11 of our kids has asthma. In Bear County, where, where San Antonio is, that's like one in seven. And you and I know that in communities of color, lower middle income families, that is a much higher rate, maybe three or four out of seven, right? So now you have these kids that may have higher rates of asthma attacks on top of you know, the recent inaction that will lead to the um, expiration of CHIP benefits. In Texas alone, that affects 400,000 people. That's 400,000 kids and, and pregnant women that needed medical insurance. Be these kids now being sicker, them then not having access to quality health care as a result of, you know, the Republicans being adamant about denying folks those resources leads to more and more folks like growing up and not necessarily being healthy enough. On one respect, maybe go into the military, and that's not the only reason that this is an issue. But I mean, just growing up with a larger and larger population that has medical ailments that are related to or exacerbated by man-made climate change.
So I think it's something that, yes, is, is an issue as our military has to respond to these, these, these missions for which they are not adequately resourced and adequately trained, all the way to the rising medical costs that all of us have to deal with when such a large percentage of our population uh, is now afflicted with these climate change related ailments. So you mentioned CHIP, which in case uh, listeners don't know, is the Children's Health Insurance Program, which provides low-cost health insurance to about 9 million children, and Republicans let it expire recently. Could you tell us about how you would approach health care in Congress and what your priorities would be? Yeah. You know, the CHIP example for me is, is really one in which there's your voting record, but then there's also your record of silence. Right. And in these times under this administration, when you don't speak out on what is clearly a wrong, when you don't speak out on something that significantly affects a large number of Texans, but also communities that are already the most vulnerable. Right. I mean, that to me is as egregious as their voting record. So, look, I think health insurance, I think health care, I think we do need to move to a single payer system. The only incentive that we should have when it comes to public health is the public's health. And so frankly, when you look at our, our healthcare system, it's not unlike um, aspects of our judicial system where profit is a motivating factor. And unfortunately, that has not necessarily increased what is the most important aspect of, of our public healthcare system, which is again, the public's health. We need to move to, to single payer. Is that gonna happen overnight? It, it physically cannot happen overnight, but I think that's what we need to be moving toward in the interest of economic security. I think folks, you know, regardless of income, regardless of where they live, should have access. So they should have the right to be healthy to work. They should have the right to be healthy enough to take care of their kids. They should have the right to be healthy enough to take care of their aging parents. I mean, this I think is the moral question of our time. Do you deny folks access to kind of basic needs just based on their income level? And I think on the answer, you know, on, on the issue of healthcare, the answer should obviously be no. I wanna go back to the wall quickly. Obviously this is a big issue for your district. I believe it spans one third of the US-Mexico border. I'm wondering how you hope to confront this issue and how you hope to make the United States and Texas more welcoming to undocumented Americans. Yeah, I mean, I think, so, you know, with the wall, I mean, just to be clear, if it wasn't clear to anybody, I do not support the wall, right? I think that's a complete waste of resources. And as I've talked to, you know, leaders, formal and informal, um, as I've traveled the district, uh, we're all on the same page with that. It's just, it's just not necessary. And there are so many aspects of our economy, of our, of our educational system, of our um, healthcare system that would benefit from that investment. I think in terms of making, you know, our, our country more welcoming, I think it first has to start with honoring the promise that we made to DACA recipients. I mean, Texas has the second largest DACA population after California. It's 100,000 young people. And I think, you know, we've got to honor that promise because of our proximity to the border. We see this in a little bit different light than other parts of the country because, again, because of our geography, you can't talk about immigration without talking about, you know, the economic and, and really kind of the personal aspects of this. To your point, creating more certainty, again, which starts with granting, uh, with keep monitoring the promise that we made to the DACA recipients. I think that's just so key because it's creating a lot of, obviously, stress within personal families. I mean, the number of mixed status families that we have in this part of the country is, not surprising, very high. I'm most concerned about the potential public safety concerns that could arise out of this when you know you have communities not trusting local law enforcement because it's unclear 
about whether or not, you know, if they call somebody based on some, you know, some domestic issue, whether or not they're now going to be deported. Right. So I think there's a real public safety issue when communities are not able to, to trust the very entities that are set up there to ensure the public safety. You know, so certainty on at least the DACA question would go very far. So you mentioned fear of deportation if you report domestic issues. A big thing has been women who suffer domestic abuse who are undocumented have been afraid to report it because they fear deportation. And that kind of goes to the question of sanctuary cities, which has obviously been a big priority in the Texas legislature, the state legislature. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on sanctuary cities and ultimately reforming the system so that they're not necessary in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I think the need for compassionate immigration policies at the local level reflect the reality that our cities face, which is, look, these are folks that are contributing members to our community. They're, they're leaders, they're our students, at least in military CDUSA, they're also members of our military. Those policies are the local leaders' pragmatic response, really, to what, what they deal with on a daily basis. And so, you know, there's certainly, again, the, the personal issues around deporting so many folks, but also there's, again, the public safety issue that they're working to address. And as, you know, as the mayors, as the local leaders, they have to address those in a way that, one, ensures the public safety and ensures that people can just live their daily lives. Any, any attempt, any pragmatic step to ensuring that communities are as safe as they can be, that's what we need to move toward. So something else unique to your district is voting rights. The 23rd is a majority Hispanic district that has been targeted a lot with gerrymandering and voter suppression. How do you hope to protect and expand voting rights in Congress? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, as a representative, your your job is to, one, you know, deal with what's going on, what you're being confronted with in D.C. in light of the reality of your own state, right? So, I mean, you raise a, you know, a valid point and one that we think of not only as it relates to, to voting, but as it relates to healthcare, as it relates to education is, you know, how do I best represent the people of my district in light of the things that are coming out of Austin, right? As it relates again to the bathroom bill or SB4, which is essentially show me your papers. The worst thing that can happen is when people do not feel like their vote, like their voice, matters, right? Because then people just give up on the system. You know, I see that as a as a long-term threat to our national security. And it relates to voting rights. It relates to, frankly, how we've seen public officials just talk about the public, right? Or aspects of the public. And I talked about this a little bit after Charlottesville, in which I argued that when the next generation of Americans looks up and sees their public servants from the president to the attorney general to their representative taking steps and making statements that show that they show they have they see rather no value in the next generation of Americans then the long term threat that we all face is when the next generation of Americans don't value public service and that's a real concern for me because having served in the intelligence community frankly not a community you know well known for its diversity certainly lack of diversity at the leadership levels but yeah, after 9-11, there was the 9-11 Commission report, which talked about a failure of imagination. And I would argue a failure of imagination is just a different way of saying failure of empathy. And that's what happens when everybody in the room kind of looks alike, has the same upbringing, has the edge of same educational same educational background, same socioeconomic background, it makes it harder and harder to imagine other scenarios or other narratives or other explanations for why something is happening. 
And so, you know, whether it be voting rights or whether it be access to healthcare or access to quality education, I think we have to be thinking of that in mind, which is what are we do what are we doing to ensure that the next generation of Americans are included in all of our policies. And I think that's why folks, as I talk in, within the district, are so encouraged by somebody like my profile, because I've, I've one, I'm a public servant, right? I mean, that a record of public service, I think, is what's most needed now. Um, when I was in uniform, when I was a civil servant, it wasn't about Democrat, Republican. It was about results, right? And it was about asking the right questions, making sure we're moving in the right direction. And it's that approach that I think folks are so encouraged by, as well as my personal story. I mean, I know I know what it's like, again, when your health insurance plan is, I hope you don't get sick. Like, I was raised by a single mother. I know what that's like. So I think, one, the personal experience with, the, uh, with these issues, as well as a record of public service, is, is what it's going to take to ensure that this district is represented in a way um, that aligns with their values and their interests. Your district has a population of over 747,000 people. So that's not quite the kind of district where you can go door to door yeah. and reach every <laughs> single voter. I wish. What's sure. it like trying to reach out and really get a sense of what the priorities are? Yeah. So lots of driving, right? Um, <laughs> better make sure that car is gas uh, fuel efficient, rather. <laughs> This is a big district. It's also diverse. And I've, I've likened it to a microcosm for the entire country, right? You've got two big, po large population centers on either side. You have San Antonio, you have El Paso. As you mentioned, we've got the border. I mean, when you think of trade, San Antonio is where NAFTA was signed in, in the late 80s. And again, as you mentioned, a majority minority district. There's 29 counties. Actually, it's larger than the country of France. So there is certainly the tyranny of, of distance just kind of getting there. For me, though, you know, it's really, you know, balancing how do I talk about healthcare in San Antonio as well as healthcare in the in the rural area, which is served by only 19 rural health clinics, right? How do I talk about education in San Antonio and how do I or Uvalde or Eagle Pass as well as in Alpine and Presidio? And so it's really balancing the the priority and the and the attention on the issues that affect everyone, right? So the issues have consistently been immigration, healthcare, and economic opportunity. That's what folks always want to talk about. Frankly, some of it some of it overlaps. Some of them are the exact same. Um, but there are some nuances to, to frankly, you know, living in a rural community versus living in a suburb of San Antonio. But I think that's the challenge of our time, right? I mean, again, when you look at the distribution of education levels, the distribution of income levels across the country, I mean, that's a national problem that is, is represented in this district. What is it like on the campaign trail? What is a normal day <laughs> in this probably pretty abnormal process? Yeah. A normal day in this campaign process, to your point, right, I wish I could knock on 700,000 doors, but I can't do that. But I do uh, have to communicate with folks. Um, and so I've got to raise the money to, to be on TV, to be on the radio and engage with folks where they are and frankly, in a language that, that they understand. So I spend a lot of my time engaging with, with folks and trying to raise money. But I must admit, I'm having a, a blast. This is, again, when I talked about just kind of one contrast between myself and World Heard, a lot of folks know that this election is going to be different. This election is a clear kind of test of, for so many people, like our values, what we stand for, you know, the kind of country we, we, we want to be and we are. And we just, you know, may have been sidetracked for a little bit, but we just need, we can get right back there. There are so many folks that are, that are energized and frankly, that tell me I've never been involved in politics. But after November, I knew I had to do something different. And that's young, that's old, that's, you know, men, women, that's 
every race, <laughs> every background. So I'm having a great time engaging with folks that are really ready to, to send, send somebody to Washington that's going to finally represent their interests. So last week, I spoke with Texas gubernatorial candidate Jeffrey Payne, who just so happens to own a gay leather bar. Mm -hmm. And he told me that he believes the culture of Texas is changing enough to give him a real chance of becoming governor. Do you believe that's the case? Do you believe that Texas is becoming generally a bluer and more accepting state? It's not my line. It's it's folks that have been in the political game much longer than I have been. But look, Texas, I and I agree that I don't think Texas is a red state. I think Texas is a non-voting state. Um, when you look at our demographics, this seat, for example, should be a, a safely blue seat. And if folks voted um, at certain rates, it would be. There is a change across the country. I think we're seeing some of that in Texas as well. And I think we are seeing, you know, some of that change in Texas, maybe more acutely, just because, you know, we are having to disproportionately experience the effect of these poor, poor policies, right? Texas has three of the top 10 largest cities in the nation. Right. Why my state can put people on the moon, but we have the highest mortality rate in the developed world is beyond me. Right. One in 10 kids in this country goes to school in Texas. Um, we've got 36 representatives. Only 12 of them are Democrats. Only two of them are women of color. You know, because we are disproportionately affected by some of these things, folks are all the more excited to step up and again, send folks to D.C. that really represent Texas values. You know, gerrymandering has not been kind to us, though, this district in particular. And so, yes, we have a chance in 2018 and folks are excited about that opportunity. What do you hope to do to combat gerrymandering? Combating gerrymandering starts with energizing the base to have them vote on the issues because, again, we're disproportionately affected by these issues. We should all be insulted and concerned that, you know, this administration doesn't want to count certain people, right? That should always be a red flag when, when you don't even want to collect the type of information that would allow you to make informed decisions that already is indicative of your intent um, with respect to really understanding the challenges and opportunities of our country and certainly this state and my district. I think we do need you know, a truly bipartisan commission um, that, that looks at gerrymandering and redistricting nationwide. I think this administration's made up issue of voter fraud really speaks to, you know, their their attention on on the issues that one are one not real <laughs> and, and that are serving just kind of their narrative about what's going on. But again, when you look at the numbers, frankly, if you allow them to be collected so they can be analyzed so you can actually legislate, it shows a much different story. The issue of gerrymandering is a, is is not a Democratic or Republican issue. This is an issue that really again affects the entire country and how we think about the representative democracy that we want moving forward. What advice would you give to, say, a young queer woman of color interested in running for office? So my advice to her would be the same that I would give to a white cisgender straight guy, right? Um, <laughs> which is, look, if you think you can serve your country, if you think you can serve your community, you should do that. Make sure that you're prepared and you're qualified. Make sure you've done your homework. But go for it. Go after it. Your community deserves you. Your country needs you. Um, you should do it. There's no higher calling than public service and certainly elected office. And if you think you can make a difference, then you should do that. I mean, I think to your point, certain communities like women of color, queer women of color, need to maybe told be told that three or four times as much as maybe as a, a white cisgender male. But 
to me, honestly, my message is the same. If you think if you think you can serve the public in an honorable way, you should do that. So how can folks get involved in your campaign? Yes, let's see. So there's two things. Please donate, GinaOrtizJones.com. There's a link to contribute there. And then please spread the word. For me, the honor would be serving my constituents. You know, for many people, I know this race means something different. I would be the first out member of Congress from Texas. I would be the first, you know, Asian American member of Congress from Texas. There's only two female veterans of color running as non-incumbents. So this means a lot for, for many folks. And so, you know, if any, if you're energized by any of this, but also, frankly, most importantly, I would argue, if you're energized by even the way I'm, I'm talking about the issues and you think that that is a valid voice that we need in Congress, then please spread the word. Can't do it without you and you don't have to live in the district to help. And again, as that relates to either donating or spreading the word. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Again, this is Gina Ortiz-Jones, Democratic candidate for Texas's 23rd Congressional District. And I'm Jordan Valerie, Editor-in-Chief of Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co, and tune in for our next episode. Thanks for listening.